The Why Daddy Never Cries podcast would like to dedicate this show to Matt Colucci, a.k.a. Little Man. Rest in peace, brother. Another good daddy taken from his children way too soon. What happens? You get so caught up in life trying to be a good dad and playing with your kids and stuff like that, that you lose track of all it really takes to succeed with children. Just to play with them and have some good boundaries and teach them, you know, this isn't okay. You're not a bad person. You just did a bad thing. It's not about the new bicycle. It's not about going to every game. The biggest impact you can have on your parenting the biggest positive impact you can have on your children, the biggest thing that will transform your parenting more than anything else is to heal your own shit. Welcome to Why Daddy Never Cries podcast with your host, Chuck Kelleher. At Why Daddy Never Cries, we'll explore the lives surrounding daddies, their children, divorce, and silent domestic violence. We'll hear real-life horror stories from unsung heroes fighting for the ability to stay in their children's lives. We'll get those voices heard and hopefully find solutions before you lunatics burn the whole place to the ground. Hang in there, daddies. Chuck's here. Chuck Kelleher and Why Daddy Never Cries are providing this podcast as a public service. I've known Chuck for 45 years, and he's neither a lawyer nor a mental health professional. He's not a doctor nor a rogue scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Chuck is simply a guy who's lived in hell for 20 years. Once he found a way out, he drew a map to help others navigate their own way home. The views and opinions expressed by Why Daddy Never Cries, employees, or our guests are their own. Guest appearance on the program do not imply an endorsement of them, their opinions, or any entity they represent. And please, for the love of God, if you have any questions or fears about your unique circumstances, please contact a lawyer, a religious leader of your choice, or a medical professional in your area. Don't fuck this up, brothers, because we're all in this together. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Voss G2, for helping small and medium-sized businesses elevate their brand perception with design. Take your brand to the next level at VossG2.com. We'd also like to thank Harry Duran and his team at Fullcast for their amazing assistance. If you're planning a podcast and you haven't contacted Fullcast, you might as well call your show Podfade. Hey everyone, today we're talking with Sven Erlinson, the principal and founder of Badass Counseling. And if that name doesn't say everything, this episode is definitely going to shake some things up for you. We all know we have to care for ourselves to be the best possible version of daddy for our children. We go to the gym, we eat healthy, and we ensure we don't overdo it or mask any of our pain with outside blinders. What we're going to learn on today's episode is that while we're building that beast mode version of ourselves, we're also going to have to tear down our past to understand why we're acting, saying, and reacting the way we do. If you ever told yourself, hey, I'm not like my parents, I do the opposite of what they would have done, guess what, man? The baseline of your decision still originates from that negative place. People tend to create their own myths about how they grew up to avoid looking at the real truth. Today, we're going to open those ugly doors, because without understanding the whys of our actions, we're only just throwing darts at creating our envisioned futures. In a world where headlines scream for attention, we choose to listen to the whispers that hold the true revelations. All right, brothers, let's get into this. Sven, welcome to the Why Daddy Never Cries podcast. How you doing, brother? Great. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you into the game? Uh, which game specifically are we talking about? It's true. You do have a few out there. I'm actually very curious about your seven years. You're two and a half on the street and five in the car. Can we get into that? Yeah. Uh, for several years, they, I was uh, living among the homeless in my car, car homeless, and I'd given up my life possessions, except that car and, uh, you know, a few things I could fit in it. And I was living and working among the homeless. And then at one point, I took it to the next level. I gave away all of my life possessions, drained my bank account. And I was uh, living among and working, ministering to the homeless of Oakland, California. Now, wow. There are parts of Oakland that are so beautiful, but Oakland can be a very sketchy city. <laughs> um, and uh, sleeping on concrete every night for two and a half years. And I was in my late 30s, early 40s when I'm doing this. And people thought I was crazy. My parents, they weren't surprised at all. My mother used to say, Sven, you know, after living with me, <laughs> raising me and so forth, and they allowed me to be the freak that I was different. And she made the joke when I made the decision to go live on the street. She said, you know, Sven, I only get surprised when you act out of character. <laughs> and it was just the ministry of just walking around, listening to people. 
letting them tell their story, doing whatever small amounts of questioning and just helping them unburden just for a day or just for an hour or for five minutes or whatever. Yeah. Nobody knew that's why I was there. I was just another homeless guy. And, uh, but I was just trying to be present and I did it because I felt called to do it. And that's what I needed to do. And then as a result, I learned so much about people. <laughs> I mean, I was already a professional. I had a counseling career for decades. I was just taking it to a different type of people. And I've done prison ministry before, and I've done a lot, a lot of work with war veterans and, and all sorts, but working with the homeless and the drug addled among them, living, sleeping near them, next to them, outside, all that shit. It's like, <laughs> it's an education. I bet. It was fantastic. But yeah, that was a very rewarding period of my life. Just came up with the idea and did it? Actually, my parents, they were World War II generation. You know, they were born in 28, grew up in the Depression and World War II on farms mm. in Minnesota. And part of their ethos, they never forced it on us, but their ethos was, you know, go where they need is greatest. And the strong have a responsibility for the weak, the rich have a responsibility for the poor. And that was their ethos. And I took that on for myself. It wasn't forced on us. And I realized that I, you know, had the ability to help people unburden themselves from their emotional shit. And so much of what drives people to extreme places in life, whether it's extreme success or extreme failure or extreme addiction or extreme whatever, very often, not always, but very often is the pain from the past. Mm. And it accumulated, it became too much or they're compensating for it. And I knew that I had a, a few little abilities to help people unburden at least some of that. And I thought, well, where is the need greatest? Well, I've done some prison ministry already. What about the homeless? And it just felt right. And uh, so I did. What got you to the East Coast? Grew up in Minnesota, went to most of my undergrad in Colorado, went to graduate school in California. I've uh, been married a couple of times and then was living in California and was looking for a mate. So I expanded my search across the country, knowing that I could move my business pretty easily anywhere and happened to online bump into a girl from the Bronx who had grown up in the Bronx and then uh, lived in the New York City area. And so I decided to move out to the East Coast and having lived in the far north and in the west and in the far west, I loved all those, but I'm really enjoying the East Coast. It's great to be out here. Where in the Bronx? Uh, Throg's Neck. Okay. I was in Woodlawn for a decade plus. Yeah. 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 I like the Bronx, but uh, we moved to Yonkers, saved a bunch in taxes. And then right before the pandemic, we moved to Connecticut and the rest is history. Very cool. Yeah. Now we have land, which is nice. Land is good. Trees are good. Seven novels. And are you, did I hear you're working on an eighth now? Uh, actually, they're not novels. It's all nonfiction. But yes, I'm uh, working on the next book. I sort of started in the field. I'm a former clergyman. So my first one was in the field of spirituality uh, as it intersects religion, then another book on spirituality as it intersects politics, and another book on spirituality as it intersects athletics, because I'm a former NCAA strength coach. And uh, then, yeah, then relationship books. And um, I've had a counseling practice for about 30 years. The last couple of books have been on sort of life problems that I encounter and giving people all of my tools or as many of them as I could to teach them how to heal themselves. Uh, because we have a mental health sort of massive epidemic of there not being enough or it being too expensive. So I've put that into a book form and then I have you know free podcasts and I do all these videos on social media, probably, I don't know, 850, whatever, just things to help people heal on their own. And so, yeah, that's what I do podcasts, your books, everywhere we can find you. We'll have in the show notes. I'll get links from you and we'll put them all in the show notes for everybody. So if anybody has any questions for anything, you'll be able to find Sven. So everything's on my website, badasscounseling.com. He's got some great stuff out there. Thank you. So, okay. So you were more with spirituality. What brought you into the relationship realm? Well, like I said, I had a counseling practice for 30 years. So it's not that I'm specifically in the relationship realm. My background is actually, as I said, spirituality, former clergyman, but I've uh, lectured at both the graduate and the undergraduate levels in the field of early childhood, particularly spiritual development of children. Uh, I've also lectured at the graduate or undergraduate levels. That was graduate level and the undergraduate levels in spirituality, but also athletics, sports psychology. So most of my work isn't just uh, relationships, it's family, it's individuals. The ultimate sort of what my all of my work boils down to is becoming your authentic self. That's awesome. So then that intersects every aspect of life. It intersects career, it intersects relationships and so forth. So for the last 10 years, and then some before that out east, but most of my work or a very large portion of my work is working with CEOs and people who run hedge funds, professional athletes, professional musicians, 
leaders in academia. That's sort of been my thing. And, you know, my office was in Manhattan for right up until COVID. But all of it, whether it's the work helping people in their relationships or uh, people in their careers or whatever, it's ultimately boiling down to that someone is not living who they really are. And as they're aging more and more, despite the accumulation of more and more success and fame and so forth, they're becoming increasingly unhappy because that hole that's been there since childhood just keeps not going away, despite the accumulation of all the things that they've been told are supposed to make that hole go away. So my work is helping them clear out all this stuff, all the pain and the fears and the BS beliefs that they've been taught about themselves that are causing them to not live an authentic life. And so that's the essence of my work. Relationships are just one aspect of that. This is obviously a high level question. How do you start digging into the childhood stuff, the stuff that's buried that we forgot about since we started drinking? Yeah. A couple of things. First of all, I never work with a client with only the rarest of exceptions when there are significant privacy issues because the person is a high profile person. But I require of every client that they write a 10 page autobiography for me. Nice. Um, and sometimes people include childhood stuff. A lot of times they won't. Once they sort of know they can trust me. Once they make the commitment to working with me, they've made a big commitment. I'm not cheap, very expensive. And when your business is named Badass Counseling, people know they're sort of, I'm, I'm very compassionate in my work, but I'm not there to fuck around. Mm -hmm. They're coming to me for a reason and they don't know how to get down to their stuff, but it's usually pretty easy to identify and just ask the right questions even if they've indicated it or not. I mean, people will write an autobiography and, you know, say, gee, I had a great childhood and, you know, nothing to say about childhood. Well, it's just about the dumbest fucking thing anybody could say. There's no chance in hell that you have massive internal problems going on inside of you without there being massive unrest in your childhood. Whether that means abuse or not, whatever, that's a separate issue, but there's just no chance in hell. And so then you really only have to start pulling a little bit on those threads and they sort of uh, unravel right in front of me. When I first started out, did was I able to do what I can do today? No, of course not. But you do something long enough. I mean, if I were an auto mechanic, even though I don't know jack about cars, but if I'd been an auto mechanic for 30 years and constantly trying to learn more, by the time I reach my age, which is 56, I'd probably know what I'm looking for. I'd be able to tell. I mean, think about it. When you call your auto mechanic and, you know, can I get an appointment? And they say, well, what's going on? You say, I don't really know. Well, do you notice any sounds? Yeah sounds. So that means somebody is so good that they can make a ballpark diagnosis based on a sound. Yep. Okay. Now you don't have to be in 30, 30 years in the automotive industry to know that certain sounds mean certain things, but what does that say? You do something long enough and you begin to pick up on indicators or it's pulling to the right, or there's a little bit of a knock in my engine or whatever it is. Well, it's the same way in my work. Mm -hmm. You notice patterns and there are patterns and there are patterns that just repeat themselves over and over again. And despite differences in details, there are just patterns there. And so, like I said, you just sort of know what questions to ask and you pull the threads and all sorts to unravel. There are some that are resistant. But my first session with any client is a minimum of four hours, maximum of six. And the smart ones choose six, just because you can accomplish so much more in one six hour session than you can in six one hour sessions. And no matter how resistant someone is to talking about their past or claiming, you know, mom's just wonderful, dad was great, whatever, they can't last six hours. And I can. And my questions and so forth, you sort of wear them down. But the bottom line is, is people want to heal. And if they're even remotely familiar with my work, they know that that's where I'm always going anyway. So you wouldn't really come to me unless you're at least somewhat open to that possibility. Whether or not you know how to crack it open yourself is irrelevant, but you have to be open to the possibility because you wouldn't come to me unless you knew that I was probably going to go there. So anyway, it sort of right. um, happens pretty quickly. And then that's where we spend the rest of the time because that's where most of the problems, if not all of them, find their origin. Now, your dad was a Lutheran pastor for 60 years. Yes. Any of that have any play in here? Yeah. Um, and I had four uncles who were Lutheran clergy. And my mother had been a school teacher coming out of college back in the 40s. Right. And uh, early 50s. Then she raised six kids. And then she ended up in her 50s starting her really taking off and running very, very large education programs. She ended up teaching at the graduate level in the field of early childhood. And 
Yeah, dad's impact and mom's impact. I was blessed with two really incredible parents, both of them World War II generation, but uh, very kind people. My dad tried to sneak into World War II at age 17, and they were all tough back in that generation, but I had the gentlest father ever known. (laughs) humblest guy you've ever met. Awesome. And, uh, but the impact it had on my career was my dad had only one flaw. And my dad's flaw was he talked and he talked and he talked. He was harmless. He, I was never hurt me. I was never criticized by my father, but he just never talked. So you got six of us kids and you're competing with dad for attention. So there was a dearth of attention in our home. Uh, but mom mm-hmm. was a master listener and she worked for suicide prevention hotlines. Oh, wow. So I experienced both for all of my life up until really 70s, 80s. And then dad and I, and we were always close, but I just reached a point back in my 30s, whatever. I just didn't even try to add that deep connection with them. But I had both. I experienced how the frustration of not feeling heard and how it hurts. And I experienced the sheer ecstasy of feeling heard and someone going deep and how profoundly healing that can be. And it was interesting. I was in my teens, my early teens, and uh, all of my older siblings had flown the coop except one, but he, you know, was gone a lot. And so my parents were used to a full house and we ate meal together every night, just the three of us. And my mom took it upon herself for whatever reason, I have no idea why, to begin to teach me at age 13 listening techniques, active listening, passive listening, diving deeper, how to ask a question, how to sum up what someone just said and find the main sentence that they're saying. What are they not saying in that paragraph that your just dad just said? What was he not saying? Oh, wow. And she was just teaching me all this shit, just like she had taught me how to use a sewing machine and taught me how my parents had taught me gardening and so on and so forth. So I have no idea why other than she was just taught things. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, you know, I uh, left the Air Force Academy after a couple of years, realized I wasn't interested in being a pilot back in my teens and went into ministry and discovered I was kind of good at that. But the writing career sort of went somewhere and then the counseling just sort of blossomed. And here I am 30 years later talked about uh, the shouting with the kids. And I love the phrase that says, uh, children shout loudest when they're heard the least. Can we touch on that? Because that is definitely something I think as a father, the guys out there, we can get, most of my guys only get their kids every now, well, it's yeah. daddy weekend, everybody knows it. So you get your kids when you get them. A lot of my guys don't see their kids, but once a couple of months. So in those scenarios, what we could do to help them be better parents. And I think the shouting thing is uh, something guys got to deal with. Yeah. And, and the truth is, um, my first wife walked away from our relationship when my kids were six and three. And, you know, there she had been pouring poison into my kids' ears for years and, you know, parental alienation, all that stuff for years and years and years. I was somewhat closer with my oldest, but it wasn't until their 20s that uh, I really began to get much closer because I knew when it first happened, when uh, the divorce happened and all the alienation was happening, I knew enough about childhood development. I knew enough from my own field and my own counseling career. I knew that children become adults. And I knew knew that if I had to wait till 35, I would wait till 35 because it's right around the mid thirties when people really, not everyone, but a lot of people, male and female, begin to really differentiate themselves from those voices inside of themselves, from parents and so on and so forth. They begin to really want to discover who they are. And for some, plenty of people, it's much earlier. For some people, it's later, but roughly the average is mid thirties. I knew that if I had to wait until 30 years till my kids were old enough to seek life for themselves and to begin to truly understand not just what the hell happened back then, but who are they really? Who do I come from? Uh, if I had to wait 30 years, I knew I, I could and I would. Okay. But turns out I only had to wait about 15. They got into their twenties. They began to become alienated from their mother and then getting closer to me, beginning to see, Hey, I had been trying the whole time, et cetera, et cetera. So my point coming back to this notion of children shout loudest when feeling heard least and what to do when your child is shouting. The child shouting is more of a metaphor that if a child is exhibiting behaviors that are annoying, that are clearly attention-seeking. What they're saying, not just to you, the dad, what they're saying to life is, I'm not getting enough attention, which is really, I need love. Well, what happens when you're a single dad, when you're a parent of any stripe, 
what happens? You get so caught up in life, making the money and, and, and you know, providing and, and trying to be a good dad and playing with your kids and stuff like that, that you lose track of all it really takes to succeed with children, just to play with them and have some good boundaries and teach them, you know, this isn't okay. You're not a bad person. You just did a bad thing. It's really basic shit. It's not about the new bicycle. It's not about going to every game. <laughs> My father and mother, they went to less than a handful of games before I got into 10th grade. I was in so many sports. I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it because I loved sports. And whether or not you go to every game isn't the point. Mm -hmm. Are you present for your kids? Are you giving your children attention? Do you spend time with them playing? Right. Do you spend time with them asking how they're doing? Can you shut the fuck up and listen to your kids? Can you literally shut the fuck up, not try to fix them, right? As my mother always, and she was teaching me this when I was 13. I have no idea why. She said, Savannah, always remember. And she had raised five kids by the time I'm, you know, I'm coming along. I'm 13. She said, always remember, Sven, children want to be heard, not fixed. Yeah. I've used that over the years. That's true of most adults. Yeah. Yeah. There are times in life when we, when we want to fix, but it's more about wanting to feel heard. But here's the thing. The biggest impact you can have on your parenting, the biggest positive impact you can have on your children, the biggest thing that will transform your parenting more than anything else is to heal your own shit. Agreed. To heal your own shit from your own childhood, because that more than any other thing will infect every decision you make, especially parenting. It will drive, outright drive the decisions. And people say, well, I already know my parenting philosophy. I said, what's that? They say, I just do the opposite of my parents. My parents are so bad. And I'm like, well, that's great, genius. Except you're still taking your cue from your parents. You're just doing the opposite. And I got news for you. The opposite of bad is oftentimes worse. Exactly. And so people say, well, what does that mean? I said, I had a client. And this is just one example. I had a client who, you know, she was neglected by her parents, no attention, never told that she was loved, never hugged. And so she, when she, it came time for her to have children, she decided, and by the time she'd come to me, she's in her 40s, all right? So this isn't some kid in her 20s. By the time she's coming to me, she's like, Sven, you know, she left some dangling threads in her autobiography. And I said, tell me about, you know, your daily interactions with your kids. Oh, I drive them to school all the time. I never let my kids get out of the car or leave the room without like touching their arm or touching their shoulder or touching their leg. Never. When my kids come into the room, I say, Charlie's here. I said, what do you mean when they come into the room? Like you haven't seen them in a week? They said, no, if, if we're watching TV and Charlie went to the bathroom, he comes back in. I always make sure they know that they're seen and loved. I always say, Charlie's here or Sarah is here. I said, every time? She says, yeah. That's interesting. I said, how old are your kids? She said, well, they're, you know, 14, 12. I'm just making up numbers. I don't remember. It's been, you know, a few years. They, but she had four of them, 14, 12, and eight and whatever. And I said, how are your children with this? And they're like, they can't stand it. It drives them fucking nuts. Yeah. I said, shocker. I said, so your 14-year-old doesn't want you, you know, touching him and saying, I love you every single time he gets out of the car or your daughter, blah, blah, blah. And she said, no, and I can't figure it out. I said, you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. Yep. <laughs> They're doing it for you, the opposite of something bad. And so it's causing the children more than a teenager naturally pushes away from a parent. It's causing your children to push away from you ultimately. And it's happening. it was happening with the eight-year-old too. So already at eight, I said, it's causing them to see your love as inauthentic. That's interesting. They don't believe it because you give it this bigger response for this little stimulus. They walk into a room and you're, you know, striking up. Throwing confetti in the air. <laughs> exactly. So they don't trust you. They don't trust your love. And they begin to wonder, well, why is this happening? What's really going on? And they don't understand. And at some point they figure out this is about mom's shit. So now you're creating a negative parenting cycle based on the opposite of a negative parenting cycle. That's wild. The thing you can do is heal your shit. And once or as you're healing your shit, then you can begin to become a deliberate parent. And this was one of my mom's phrases, deliberate parenting, where you're not just reading books on parenting, which is huge. And a lot of people don't reading books. And there's some great books out there on parenting, some that have been around a very long time and some that are fresh. It's not just that, though. That's a great start. But you're doing your best to remove yourself from the equation. And the way you remove yourself from the equation, that is your own shit from your past, removing that from the equation. 
The way you do that is by going into it. And those are the tools that I've created to help people begin to do that. But then you become more and more present to the person sitting in front of you. You begin to be more present to your child. In other words, it's not about me anymore. Now it's about the child. Now I can listen without needing to fix. Well, what's driving the need to fix? What's driving the need to fix is that you, child, as you're talking, as you're sharing your problems, I'm beginning to get agitated inside. Interesting or I'm beginning to get fearful or worried or whatever it might be for whatever reason. And so I'm going to try to fix you, control you. Right. My feelings reduce. So in other words, my feelings are driving my interactions with you, which means I'm not present to you. I'm present to my feelings and I'm just trying to change you to make my bad feelings lessen. Well, what's driving all those feelings? That shit back there. So this notion of um, children shout loudest when feeling heard least, the reason children ultimately are not feeling heard, are not feeling like the parent is present, are not feeling loved, are not feeling like someone is pouring love into their love cup, the reason children feel that 99.99999 times out of 100 is because the parent is still dealing with their own shit from their own parents, from their own childhood. It almost always, in fact, I couldn't even name a situation where it doesn't, where the origin source isn't somewhere in childhood. That's crazy. Now, how do you just by starting a conversation with somebody, you bring it back to that point? I can imagine most guys don't come in thinking, oh, my father was a jerk. Yeah. I mean, some guys can identify that. And some guys do identify that. We uh, taped an episode of my podcast last night. We had a fellow on the show, uh, Mac, and uh, it's up on YouTube, whatever. And it'll be out on the audio version on Spotify and shit, you know, a month and a half or whatever. Anyway, Mac came in and, uh, you know, he talked a little bit about his childhood because I counsel people on the show. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm doing free counseling on the show. And my producers had chosen this guy and people are required to write in one paragraph so that I have an idea of what the hell they're talking about. And I can get a paragraph and I know where to start digging. In the case of Mac, you know, he mentioned his parents had died in the last year and that a woman had broken up with him and that a business was potentially failing. I started listening to that one. Uh-huh. Okay. So he's got a lot of fucking trauma. This guy's 60 years old. So the first question I ask him is, wow, your parents died in the last year. How did that feel? Now, both of my parents died in their 90s in uh, 92 and 93. Okay. So, you know, I, I know what that feels like. Yeah. And I asked him, how did it feel? And he said, I didn't feel anything. Ooh. Okay, there we go. There's my thread point. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with not feeling anything. I had been grieving. I knew my parents were going to die for five or 10 years in advance. And so I had done some of the work in advance and they had prepared us for their deaths and so on and so forth. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily be an indicator of something bad. Yeah. But I asked I said, you know, oh, your dad died and didn't feel anything. No, your mom died, didn't feel anything. No. I said, and yet you you commented that when this woman left you back in November, you were absolutely heartbroken. He said, yeah. I said, so that means you feel feelings with regard to a woman and love, but you don't feel feelings with regard to your dad and your mom. And he says, I don't know, I guess I just didn't feel it or whatever. And, you know, he said, you know, I used to have strong feelings and I, you know, my dad and I fought for years and years and years, but, you know, several years ago, however many, 15, 20 years, I just uh, sort of stopped feeling anger at my mom because I realized she was just a sweet old lady. I said, stop feeling anger. That means you felt anger. Mm -hmm. You said you were going to stop feeling it. That means it was there, but you were basically going to not allow it any oxygen. So that means you feel anger towards your mom. You're just keeping it packed down. You just aren't going to give it any oxygen. You're not going to let it out in the open. And for what possible reason would you feel anger towards your mom? But I tell you what, knowing he's probably not going to, you know, call his mom out first if she's a sweet old one. And knowing also that very often couples uh, set up as if there's a really, really sweet one, that oftentimes means uh, there's a big asshole. Mm. All right. And it's not necessarily the woman's the sweet one and the man's the asshole. Sometimes it's an inversion. If someone's in therapy, usually they either had two bad parents, they had one really bad one and one less bad one right. or something along those lines. So I said, mom's a sweet old lady. Then what was your dad? And, uh, uh, well, I had a tough childhood. Tough. What does tough mean? Well, you know, I never, dad, you know, I was always trying. There were four of us brothers and just, you know, didn't always get the, you know, the love I want. And I was sort of the one that caught the brunt of it. Oh, caught the brunt. What did you catch the brunt of? Well, <laughs> dad's belt. Okay. Yeah. Dad's, so here we go. I said, really? Okay. Just out of curiosity. And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. And I'm mm -hmm. 
not trying to offend you by asking, just asking an honest question. You brought up the, the belt thing. Uh, what was the earliest you got the belt? He said, oh, and this is a 60-year-old man. Okay. I said, what was the earliest you, you recall getting the belt? And, and mind you, we're, I don't know, five minutes into the conversation, 10 minutes in, whatever. Yeah. What's the earliest you got the belt? He said, five years old. I got it real bad. And uh, he said, and the only reason I remember it is because I remember the salt on my cheeks from my crying. Oh. I said, salt cheeks. He says, yeah, I just cry. I was crying so much, crying so much that I remember that feeling. I said, wait, were you belted across the face? He says, no, 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 I was belted across the bottom. And I said, well, I got a curious question for you. What possible crime could a five-year-old commit that would justify getting a belt so badly that the child is feeling it, is so in tune in the moment that he's feeling the salt and the salt and the salt on his face? What justifies a whipping with a belt at age five? And he said, nothing. I said, nothing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And now we're in it. Dad, it was a hothead. Dad had a temper. Dad was a fucking dick who couldn't control himself and would whip a five-year-old child. I said, tell me more. And then we're in it all. Yeah. Right there. And then, but the, oh, the most interesting part is not when you unlock who the abuser is, when you unlock, well, what did mom do in these cases? Well, mom was terrified, you know, and they had argued, did dad ever lay hands on mom? Now that question can go either way. You know, and a lot of times the female is the abuser. That's what it was in my mm -hmm. adult relationships early on. The females were the abusers. I said, well, what was mom's role? Well, I would often step in to deflect dad's wrath against her. I said, so, and what was the earliest that sort of started? He says, eight, 10. I said, so an eight-year-old is taking the blows so that a parent, a grown-ass adult, doesn't take the blows. Do you see the problem there? He said, what do you mean? I said, that's an inversion of roles. Yep. I said, a child taking responsibility for an adult? I'm sorry. You're six years old. That means you're roughly my age. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and there were plenty of fucking women's shelters. There were plenty of fucking domestic violence places. There were plenty of churches mm -hmm. that had, uh, you know, refuge programs that, or someone they could hook you up with. And your mom didn't get you out of there. I'm sorry, but, you know, I, I don't know where you live. I said to Mac, this guy in the show, I said, but I guarantee on the side of your cop cars in your city, it says to protect and to serve. Mm hmm. Right. And that, I mean, if we really sum it up at a really basic level, a lot of guys and a lot of parents think, well, my two jobs are to protect and provide. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not just providing a roof over the head and food on the, on the table. It's providing for the emotional need, providing love, providing support, right? So many more parents are good at it nowadays because we, we realize, oh, that's fucking important. And not just to protect the child from, you know, bears or marauders or the bully on the playground, but protect their feelings, create a safe space where that child's feelings and their authentic self can sort of blossom. But your mom didn't do that. She expected you to protect her. That's crazy. And so one of the questions I regularly ask, and everybody's different, but I ask the question, who commits the greater crime? The parent who hits the child or the parent who allows the child to be hit? Yeah. And every single person has a different answer, and that's okay. But the mere fact that we're even having to think about that question says the person allowing the child to be hit has a significant amount of culpability. And for a lot of people, they have higher culpability. For a lot of people, no, the hitter has, or in this case, the dad, the yeller, and the, you know, the belter and so forth. But there doesn't necessarily have to be physical hitting. That's just a, that's an analogy or that's a simile. And so now we're really into the shit. I said, so your mother didn't protect you. She let you take the hail of bullets so that she didn't have to. And I said, was that, did you feel obligated to do that? She said, he said, sometimes, but sometimes, you know, yeah, sometimes mom would ask for my help or sometimes I'd just do it because I felt bad for it. So you're protecting your mom. You're eating dad's bullets, deflecting attention away from mom, and no one is protecting the child. I said, well, that's really very interesting. So now we're down in the shit. And then we get into questions of hate. Who do you hate more, your mom or your dad? I don't really hate any of them. I'm, I'm really not a hater. Yeah, I'm right. Yeah. Bullshit. There's no fucking way because hate is a natural response. Whether you ever act on that hate is a separate issue. But feeling hate is just like love. It's just like anger. It's just like euphoria. It's just like mm -hmm. melancholy, sad. It's just one more feeling. And what do feelings do? We feel them. You win the basketball game. Oh, there's the euphoria. You go home and you're talking to your buddies as you're going home and the euphoria. And then by the next morning, you're still a bit high, but the euphoria is worn off. And by the next day, afternoon, you know, you feel good, but it's time to get back to work for the next game, right? Feelings come and feelings go. Hate is the same. The only reason feelings of hate stick is because they're never allowed to come out. Okay. I said, there's no chance in hell that somebody's getting whipped and beaten and put down and yelled at constantly and doesn't feel hate, especially if you're a male and you have testosterone inside of you. There's no possible way. No way. 
No way. No way. That means if you were always the nice guy and the one trying to patch it up, you've probably spent your life being the, trying to be the nice guy. That's how you got positive attention. He said that you nailed it exactly. To which I said, that means you have a fuck ton of hate buried inside of you. So now answer the question. What percent do you hate your mother? What percent do you hate your father? And he's like, shit. <laughs> I hate my mom 10 to 20%. I said, what percent do you hate your dad? He said, ah, maybe 50%. I said, okay. And I'm writing it down. Then he says, no, I got to change that. I hate my mom 50% too. All right. So now we're rolling. All right. He had considered that fucking question in 60 years of existence. Yeah. And now we're rolling all because I asked him about the death of his parents this last year. And one thing, one thread just led to another and you just keep pulling. And, and I come in with a spirit of, you don't have to answer. And you can give an answer and change your mind five minutes from now. I just want to understand. You know, in other words, there's no pressure. Yeah. And boy, you pull those threads and people just unravel right in front of you. You get a few that refuse to. I had to let a client go very recently. And, to, and I love the guy. I mean, he was, he just kept coming back for more counseling and so forth, but he was so resistant and he was a very uh, religious guy. And he was convinced that he was born bad. And I said, so you believe. And so we start talking theology. Now, I'm not a religious guy anymore. I said, but I can talk theology. And I asked him. You talk to talk. Yeah. So you believe that your God creates bad children inherently bad children. You believe that. What was his answer? He couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't. But he still couldn't concede that he has seen himself as bad his entire life. And that is every single one of my clients. All right. And helping them find the origin because one of the core tenets of my work, one of my brothers, John, his, his wife has been a neonatal nurse for 35 years. So she's worked with premature babies. Like they come out at 18 weeks, 16 weeks, and you know, their heart is born outside their body. Oh yeah or conjoined twins, or they have a vestigial tail, or, you know, sacral teratoma, or whatever it is. And I, I've asked her, how many kids come out of the womb bad? I asked her that. She said, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> that, That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. That is the proper answer. That is absolutely the proper answer. <laughs> She said, Sven, I fall in love with every one of the babies that I'm assigned to, every single one. Yep. That they are beautiful in their own way. They are beautiful. So the notion that a child comes out bad, of course, we reject is ludicrous. That means somewhere between the womb and right now at 60 years, you were taught a lie. Mm-hmm. Or taught that you were bad. Now, it's, it's seldom overt like it was with Mac's dad. You know, you're a piece of shit, that sort of thing. It's seldom that overt or that explicit. But it's conveyed in other ways. God, you, you just, how do you not know how to study math? I'm sitting here helping you. I'm tutoring you. What's your problem? Yeah. And that can be seven years old. Oh, yeah. I've been there. <laughs> huh. What do you think the message is? What's the underlying message that child is getting? I'm stupid. I have a problem. You know, or even maybe it's the, the mom who runs a business and she's never home at night, but her, her kids love her, but she's never home. She's never home, right? And eventually the child begins to formulate an understanding of why mom's never home. Oh, mom's working, mom's working. And so the child's brain quite logically goes to work is really important. Work is important, right? Which obviously it is. That's where mom is uh, spending the bulk of her time, right? right? And then the child's brain, after not getting their needs met, because mom's simply not present, let alone she's not there giving them hugs or, you know, fixing dinner at night. Don't even ask me how many clients I have had who grew up fixing their own meals and putting their little siblings to bed. And okay. So the child's brain goes from, wow, work is really important to work is important. I'm less important. Oh, it's a logical leap. Yeah. Right. I mean, if if you're, if your spouse is spending all their time working, you're going to start to realize, I guess I'm just fucking chopped liver here. I'm less important. And then the child's brain makes that leap from I'm less important to I'm not important to I don't matter. And then they'll even make the leap from, well, why wouldn't I matter? Because I'm no good. Okay, now we're seeing the development. This can start, I've seen it start as early as three and four, no lie. I'm seeing it at four and seven right now. We're going to definitely get into this because my little guys, now that I started the podcast, in the beginning it was like, dad's doing a podcast. Now like, oh, you're upstairs on the podcast again, dad. And I don't want it to get, because this is my second round. I'm definitely holding on to these two little ones tightly. Yeah. And that's just it. Now, it's good that a child learns distinctions that work has to happen or that the adults have their own lives. But the problem is it only becomes problematic when the child's needs, not wants, not all their wants, but where their needs aren't being met or where their feelings aren't being heard. And so that message then can imprint very, very early. I'm not important. I don't matter. 
Well, if your core belief, one of your core beliefs is I'm not good enough or I don't matter enough for mom to come home from work or dad to come home and spend time with me or play ball or just teach me how to turn a wrench. If if I don't matter that much, you know, then that's going to affect all your decisions. What are you going to be doing? You're going to start seeking attention from other sources because mm -hmm. you're not getting attention and positive attention basically translates as love. So if I'm not getting it from their origin sources in those first, you know, eight, 10 years, from the place it's supposed to come from, and that's home, I'm gonna start seeking it out in other ways. And I'll develop a personality based on my ability to get attention, right? Or to get love, or at the very least, to hide from criticism, hide from pain, hide from bullies, hide from anyone who might say a word that might hurt me. So people become the class clown quite young. I had a client who, at the age of six, became a champion wrestler, and he was a wrestler for years and years and years and years. That's the one way he had of getting positive attention. Okay. All right. But what often happens is they'll then, in those teen years, if there's, or even, even earlier, they'll degenerate into behaviors of checking out of life. I can't get positive attention, so I give up. They'll stop trying at school. Yeah. They'll start drinking at age eight. They'll, you know, start working a job or they'll start selling or they'll start using drugs or whatever. And they just sort of check out a life. And then the shit starts to go really south all because of what? Because of that core belief, I don't matter. Well, if I don't matter, then who gives a shit? No one's going to know if I'm out all night anyway. You know, mom's at work. Okay. And so all of these things are driven by the initial belief system that the child is taught about themselves. And it's often what is implicit, not always what is explicit. Mm -hmm. So now we're seeing then children shouting loudest and feeling heard least. And if you've got a problematic child, if you got a child who's now all of a sudden failing in school, or you got a child who's acting out a lot, they are screaming. And what they're screaming about is the core beliefs that have been imprinted into the wet cement of their soul. When we're children, our soul is wet cement. And as you know, when, when the men and women are out and laying the fresh sidewalks, what do they do? They make it nice and smooth and flat. They put the line in it and then they oh, yeah. make it smooth. And then they put uh, tape around it, you know, on stakes so that all when they leave, all the little peckerhead kids in the neighborhood won't come and walk in it or put their hand in it. And so then they leave at the end of the day. Well, what do all the neighborhood peckerhead kids do? They go onto that cement and they press their hand down or they get a stick and they write, Tommy is a fink. Mm -hmm. Right. And those messages, whatever is pressed into wet cement hardens. So a message like I'm less important, I'm not important, I don't matter. Nice analogy. It presses into the wet cement, hardens, it calcifies. And so the child for the rest of their life, until they realize that something's down there, they believe at the root of who they are, they believe I'm not good enough. I don't matter. I'm not important. And so then one of two things happen. Either they spend the rest of their life fighting against that to try to get positive attention, fighting against that message. And this becomes a lot of my clients and they become extraordinarily successful trying to make that inner voice go away. Or they check out at some point and they say, fuck it, I don't matter. Fuck it. Their life goes to shit. Okay. And it can happen at different times, but the power of those messages, and they don't even know they're there. They didn't even know that those messages implanted. And so my work is drilling down very, 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 very quickly. And even in my book, this is what I do. I put the tools there so the person can drill down very, very quickly and begin to identify those core messages. And, you know, day after day after day, I'm inundated with comments saying, holy shit, Sven, I'm on chapter three, or I'm, I'm on chapter nine on the binary gates. And it's blown my fucking mind. Sven, I can't get past chapter one. I have been in tears for a week just over chapter one. And so the point is when you take people down there, and this is why I always tell people, there's no change of your life without courage. The fulcrum on which all of that addressing all that shit in the past turns is courage. The courage to look at the nasty, ugly, scary truths of your past. And it's scary because it was so painful back then. And that pain has just been stuffed into a fucking vault. And you think that vault is closed. Nah, it seeps out. That's why you're yelling at your wife. Mm -hmm. That's why you're always a hot head. That's why you're always anxiety ridden. That's why you're depressed inside. It's everything that's in that vault. And you can't keep that fucking vault door shut anymore. And now you get kids. Shoot. It's going to affect everything you do in your parenting. Everything you do. Absolutely. And so that's why you want to change your parenting as a father. Start doing the real work of facing all the shit from your childhood. And a lot of people say, oh, I did. And to which I say, oh, that's great. But I guarantee there's more in there. Just because most therapists don't know how to go that, that deep or don't even know what the hell they're looking for. And, uh, but there are a lot of great dads out there. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of great dads out there. The ones that are, hey, man, I fucking applaud you. That's awesome. I agree. So I can definitely empathize with your story there because 15 years ago, 
I couldn't understand why I never finished anything. I just would not finish. And I was like, am I afraid of success? And I, I kind of hung my hat on, I'm afraid of success. And I just got to stop that and just do it. But then I started digging down into it. And whether it was playing bass guitar as a kid or playing you know, football, baseball, soccer as a kid, my father's go-to line, and he only meant it jokingly, because I know my dad, he just meant it jokingly, was don't quit your day job. Hey dad, how'd you think of the performance? Don't quit your day job. Well, that stung. And I didn't realize it stung for so long. And it doesn't matter if it's humor or not. Yeah. And this is the thing. This is the thing. A child's brain doesn't have a filter. You think you're being joking and, hey, get over it. Whatever. I was just joking. The child's brain imprints that. So if, you know, my nephew went back, you know, he's in his 30s now, but back when, let's say, he's four years old or seven years old, let's say, and he comes in from outside playing in the pool or under the sprinkler, and he comes into the hardwood forest and he slips. Right. Falls on his keister, right? If the adults in the room start laughing, say, ah, Alex, you're such a klutz. And Alex wasn't, but I'm just making up a story. Right, yeah. yeah. Alex, you're such a klutz. And everybody laughs. And Alex laughs because the adults are laughing. And he doesn't want to show, you know, that he's, you know. Embarrassed. Hurt. Yeah, exactly. Well, then let's say three months later, summer's done and he's in school. And one of the bullies, as he's walking between the desks, one of the bullies trips him. And he falls on the ground. And all of a sudden, the girls start laughing. The cute girls in, in, you know, second grade start laughing and he feels really stupid. Mm -hmm. And one of the police says, ha ha, you're a klutz. Okay, now we've got two messages. Now we've got two messages. And it's only a matter of time before Alex begins to believe I'm a klutz. That's horrible, but true. Right. And even though it was joking in one case, even though it was this, even though it was that, it imprints on a child. One of the best <laughs> expenses of my time growing up was I spent about off and on for 15, over 15 years off and on working in restaurants, okay, as a waiter and bartender. And one of my favorite things was going out drinking afterwards after a great shift and, you know, and have a meal with friends and have beers and all that. And I used to love it in particular when the back of house staff would come, particularly if one of the head chefs would come. And that wasn't very often, but I loved it because I used to love to pick their brain. I like to pick the brains of people who know shit I don't know. And one of the themes, and I worked in restaurants in Beverly Hills, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Minneapolis. And one of the themes that I heard in one form or another was from these really, these chefs at really high caliber restaurants was, Sven, on any given night, even a master chef can fuck up a dish. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, Sven, even a master chef, that's why they're master chefs, because they fuck up less. Right. That's why you're in the Olympics for the balance beam, because you stumble less. But even people in the Olympics stumble occasionally or figure skating or what have you. Okay. But here's the thing, Sven. If that fuck up on that dish, whether it's a major fuck up or I just left out a quarter teaspoon of salt and that can make a dish very bland. Right. If I fuck it up and that dish lands in front of the man with the biggest mouth in town or lands in front of the LA Times food critic, that one fuck up, even though he's a master chef and every other night he's hitting his numbers or she's hitting her, you know, she's producing, that one fuck up can have profound long-term negative ramifications. And the thing that I took from that is, especially based on my background in early childhood, spiritual development, and my mom's 60 years before me was background in early childhood, is that a child's temperament, child's spirit, child's soul, who they are, is infinitely more volatile, temperamental, sensitive than even the most sensitive of ingredients, than even the most temperamental of recipes. I don't care how difficult your recipe is, a child is infinitely more receptive to and susceptible to forces around that child. Right. None more powerful than the parent. And so what that means is even a great parent or a really good parent or even a deliberate parent will fuck up. You will. But if it's done in the wrong way, or if it's done at the wrong time, or if it's done repeatedly, even if it's a small thing, it can have profound long-term negative ramifications by pressing into that wet cement to the soul, can become part of the child's identity. The woman I was dating, she had children. Children are older now, much older. This was years ago. Her daughter recalled when mom would drive her to school and mom was a sort of a nervous driver and, and so forth. And mom would always say, okay, shh, 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 Maria, shh, shh, shh. Be quiet. Mommy needs to drive. I got to focus on driving. And from that alone, happening repeatedly, Maria, who, and I'm just making up a name there. Yeah. Maria, who had been a very chatty, friendly, outgoing child, became reclusive and introverted because the message she got from mom was, I talk too much. I'm bad. Even though that had nothing to do with the mother's intent. And a lot of parents cannot divorce themselves. They cannot wrap their head around. They're so convinced that I don't do wrong. I didn't do wrong by you. They're so unwilling to own the shit that they did, even if it was unintentional, that they refuse to acknowledge there's a difference between intent 
and effect. Right. And, and so that's why really the crowning glory of the great parent, the truly deliberate great parent, isn't what happens in childhood. It's what happens when that child is 25 or 40. And the child, now an adult, comes back and says, you know, dad, I want to talk about what happened and some of the stuff that happened in childhood. Once the adult child starts talking, the parent is usually going to take one of two paths and some version of, all right, let's talk. I'm open to listening. Or what do you mean? Didn't happen. I don't know what you're talking about. No, you were at fault. You were a problem child. Whatever it is, this is a great parent who 20 years from now is willing to own their shit. Do you want to know why? As long as you can get your own fucking ego out of the way as a parent, it doesn't cost you anything to allow that child to get it out of their system. Because regardless of what your intents were, the effects were this. And what's the gift that the child gets by being able to get it off their chest and have it heard and acknowledged? And I'm not defending, denying, deflecting, or dodging. I'm taking it. And I'm not just saying, oh, sorry, let's move on now. But I'm owning it and really being present for the child. I'm setting that child free of this giant rock I'd put in the the burlap sack on their back that they've been weighted down by. And so they're at the beginning of their adult years or into their adult years. They should be flying at full wingspan, but they're bogged down by shit I did back then. How does anyone lose by me taking that rock back? It's a win for the child. And at the very least, it's like I did something right in my parenting. At the very least, I took those rocks back. And let me tell you something to fathers. I can't even tell you how many clients I've had over the years who, when they got into their 30s or 40s, they said, you know, my father was a real asshole when I was growing up. And I've only realized, you know, since working with you, Spanner, I've only realized that mom was an asshole in her own ways. But because dad was more of an asshole back then, whether he was just absent or whether he was always critical or whether he let mom, whatever, or, you know, for as much of an asshole as he was, the one thing that I'll give my dad is that he owned it later and he apologized and he felt bad. And I actually have a relationship with my dad now, but I don't have a relationship with my mom because she doesn't want to think she did anything wrong. She still is convinced she was a great parent. It's just like, I'm, I'm so sick of shit. She doesn't want to look at her shit. Whereas dad was humble enough to just own it. And it's just like, so now I actually kind of get along with my dad and it's kind of nice yeah so it's never too late as long as you have a willingness to consider the fact that i fucked up and i need to own that brother thank you so much for being on the white daddy never cried podcast your stuff is invaluable and it's going to help a lot of guys and hopefully we'll have you back on again soon pleasure was completely mine you bet you bet thank you so much for having me on i i really appreciate that tell the guys where they can find you and then obviously send me everything so i could put it in the show notes but where can they find you sure uh, everything you need is at badasscounseling.com badass counseling all one word counseling.com i am on all social my primary one is tiktok i've got a few million followers over there and it's badass counseling badass counseling on tiktok on facebook on instagram on youtube and on x uh, everything is badass counseling. My books are there, including There's a Hole in My Love Cup. That was the book I was mentioning earlier that has 80% of my counseling method in it. I just had a new book come out uh, entitled Badass which is a 366-day daily sort of meditational, inspirational sort of book. But uh, everything is there on badasscounseling.com. Very cool. All right, brother. Thanks, and have a great night. Thanks for having me on. Well, are you ready for the long game? Can you wait until your children are in their mid-30s to truly understand what happened between you and your ex? If you're listening to this show, then you know the answer. What fucking choice do you have? I've been going through some very personal life experiences these past few months. And speaking with Sven, even ever so briefly, has opened up new avenues for me to become the man I know I can be. You gotta ask yourself, have we created a family myth to avoid looking at the real truth of our upbringing? Is there a part of our past that we've buried because the pain is too much to admit that our childhood wasn't what we thought it was, nor was our family? If we say we do anything for our children, wouldn't opening these doors be the sacrifice we must make? Now listen, men. Not every repressed memory is a catastrophic trauma. Not every household has an abusive parent. But did your parents shy away from situations? And now you find yourself doing the same? Here's some low-hanging fruit from the I wish they taught me that tree. How many parents taught their kids about household finance? And how many of us wish ours had? Now, as a former victim of divorced dad's guilt... Are we overcompensating during the times we have our children present? I can tell you, I always tried to cram 50 pounds of life lessons into every daddy weekend. And with that, I owe an apology to my daughters. I'm sorry, kiddos. That one's on me. We have to find a balance with everything in our lives. The good and controllable, as well as the bad and out of our hands. You've heard me say this a million times. You can't control what happens to you. But you can control how you react to every situation that comes your way. There are millions of children out there who could be served better by healthier parents. What are we doing to make sure our children succeed? 
The Why Daddy Never Cries podcast is aired weekly, but we will switch to an every two-week show for the immediate future. We need to reach more people out there. We need to help more families. So we'll be airing each episode of our show on YouTube and other social media outlets to get the word out. Daddies are not disposable, and we never will be again. All right, Joe, take us home. We must get our voices out there. Send us your stories to Why Daddy Never Cries at Gmail or Why Daddy Never Cries on Facebook. Remember, this is a daily and sometimes hourly struggle. So follow us on Daddy Never Cries at Twitter and Why Daddy Never Cries on Instagram and let your voice be heard. Let's end the fatherless children syndrome that's plaguing this world. The team of Why Daddy Never Cries consists of Joe, the voice of reason, Nicole Kelleher, and Scott Hall. Thanks, everybody. You can't change what happened to you, brothers. What you can control, however, is how you react to every situation. So you got to figure out how to make it work for you. And when life gave me lemons, I said to hell with a glass. I'm making an international lemonade franchise. So until next time, you've got this, Daddy. Rest in peace, little man.